James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moss-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of your laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Good morning. Who is the richest person that you know? Think about that for a minute. I imagine some of you have at least crossed paths with people of substantial wealth. As you think about that person or those people, I wonder if you've noticed anything different about them, about him or her, other than that they probably have more and nicer things than you. But what I mean is, do they seem calmer or more anxious? They seem more confident or more nervous, more happy or more discontent, more prideful or more humble, more like Jesus or more like the world. The main thing I'm after in in asking these questions and drawing these things to your mind is to help you to consider the kind of effect that wealth has on people. Now, here's here's the thing. You're going to hear this in a number of ways this morning in this text and in the sermon But the New Testament consistently, almost exclusively, presents the rich as either illusioned or disillusioned. Okay, so there's some measure of illusioning going on in the rich in almost every New Testament and Old Testament instance. Again, they're almost 100% of the time when the rich are addressed, it's either because they're still under the illusion that their money can provide things for them, that God alone can provide like the rich ruler in Luke 18, or because they've already begun to be disillusioned. They they thought that, and now they're beginning to see the hollowness of that, recognizing the actual impotence of their wealth, sometimes too late, sometimes still in time. They're still with time, like Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Either way, the rich almost always live in some state of illusionment. That's... That's... I think that's countercultural. <laughs> that's it's kind of a big deal. Let me say that again. Either way, the way that the Bible presents wealth, wealth on earth, is that it is always it always has with it some some state of illusionment. The problem, as we will see, though, is not the wealth itself, but the relentless temptation it presents to those who have it. So the question is, have you noticed that? And if you know somebody who's wealthy, have you noticed that in them? So that's, that's sort of the backdrop. And with that, three main, three main points. First, being rich is not sinful in itself, but it's dangerous. That's how the Bible talks. Second, James's readers gave in to the ungodliness their wealth made possible. That is, rather than hold fast to Jesus or hold to Jesus, they surrendered to the, ever, the ever-present enticement that their wealth gave them. And finally, some specific ways we can avoid their fate. Let me say all three of those now in one sentence. 
Most simply, the sermon is a reminder that wealth provides a constant, deceptive, and potentially deadly temptation to trust in and treasure it above Jesus. Let's pray that God would cause us to see Jesus, not money, as supreme. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for another round of shin kicking. Uh, We need this, apparently, because you and all of your wisdom, love, and grace, and mercy, and all of your kindness inspired this to be written by James for the benefit of your church, and in your providence, we get it this morning. We know that you love us. We know that you love us more than we can understand. And so we know we need to hear this. God, please continue to give us an appetite for the things you've given us rather than the things that we come up with on our own. Let your word be increasingly, like the psalmist says repeatedly, especially in Psalm 119. Whatever our appetites currently, whatever our affections currently, whatever our situation currently, God, please help us to not rely on our own wisdom, but to delight in your word, to learn to think as you think, and to learn to process our circumstances as you process them and reveal that to us in your word. Let us love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate increasingly. Let us feel the needs you tell us we have rather than the ones that in our flesh we feel. Let us, in short, believe and treasure your word, knowing that the folly of you, which there is no folly, of course, but your folly is greater than our greatest wisdom. That's how your word talks. So let us live like that. Let us be humble. Let us be eager for your word, knowing that in it are treasures that are forevermore, as they point us to Jesus, who is the great treasure. Help us to hear this word as you mean us to, to hear this text as you mean us to. Let me be faithful to it, calling us to repent where necessary, give thanks and praise where necessary and all in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so James, James's address, the way he begins the passage, those to whom he is writing, lets us know that some of his readers or at least some people in proximity to his readers. So let me say this. I read more commentary than normal this week, trying to get to the bottom of something that I never got to the bottom of. And that is, who who is he addressing here? Some think it's to Christians who are sinning in the ways described here. Some, thinks, some think it's Christians who are suffering because they're around people who are sinning in the ways described here. And some some think that he's writing to non-Christians within the church whose non-Christianness is being revealed in the fact that they're acting like, like this. I don't know the answer to that, but I know that the final result is the same no matter what. If you are a Christian who is being oppressed by people who love money and are using it to crush you, look to Jesus. He's sufficient. And if you are trusting in money and oppressing people with it, repent for you are in a very perilous position. But evidently, there were some within or around James's readers who were rich, ungodly, and experiencing the beginnings of great misery that would certainly consume them if they continued on in their current trajectory. Look at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Again, James was addressing a particular group of rich people among his readers 
or those connected to them, ordinarily, if you hear something like, come now, you rich, what do you expect to follow? Come now, you you rich, the world tends to think, let's celebrate, let's let's party, let's rejoice. You have a lot of money, you're you're blessed, you have access to things. You're blessed, be happy, be content. Consequently, what actually followed in what James wrote must have been a bit jarring. Rather than charge them to laugh and be merry with the things their money could provide for them, the command was to weep and howl. It's like what animals do because of the miseries that had already begun to come upon them and would soon break fully over them if they did not repent. I'm going to come, I'm going to go, I'm going to unpack that in just a second. But before I do, I want to say something I hope is already clear to you. Words like weep, howl, miseries, they're not used for things other than dire circumstances. The specific rich people that James was referring to were in big, big trouble. We'll find out in verses 2 through 6 exactly what they were doing that got them into this place. But let's first consider exactly how serious this was. It it should be obvious it's serious. I want to help you to see it even more clearly. The charge to weep and howl is an echo of many, many Old Testament prophets. And it's used almost exclusively when they were promising destruction on the day of judgment for all who would persist in some rebellion that they were in against God. Isaiah 13, 6, wail, wail for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Ezekiel twenty one twelve. cry out and wail, son of man, for the sword of God is against my people. It is against all the princes of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Strike, therefore, upon your thigh. One more, Amos 8, 3. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. There are many other calls in the Old Testament like that to weep and to howl, and almost all of them are after the kind of Response. Almost all of them refer to the kind of response that is appropriate for the terrible, terrible and imminent judgment of God that is swiftly coming towards them for sin. All right, that's bad, <laughs> right? That's, that's not good. So the fact that he's using these words, certainly with these Old Testament passages in mind, is not good. Worse, it gets worse. Worse still. More than likely, the miseries James promised were more eschatological than temporal. Fancy words, what do they mean? James was probably referring to the miseries associated with hell. Verse 2, they'll eat your flesh like fire. More than the immediate loss of wealth that he refers to in 2 and 3. Again, it cannot be overstated. you got to feel this grace. It cannot be overstated how serious of a charge this was and how dire the situation of those being addressed by James. Again, it probably doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. You don't want to hear these words. These are not words you want to hear, ever. You don't want to be commanded by God to weep and howl howl because of the eternal miseries that are fast approaching you. And consequently, you need to be, and I need to be wondering, what did they do? (laughs) What did they do to get themselves into this kind of 
situation in order that you and I can avoid it. That's a, a gift that God gives us here. If, if that's how serious this was, we got to understand what did they do and how do we not do that? Thanks be to God, he gives us, gives us that. We'll come back to it in just a minute, but I do want to say something first. In describing the specific sins of his readers in 2 through 6, James makes it clear that it was their ungodliness, not their wealth itself, that was the real problem and the real source of their present and future misery. The wealth, get this, the wealth of James's readers tempted them towards ungodliness. That's how the Bible talks all over the place, especially the New Testament. It tempted them towards the ungodliness and made ungodliness more easily accessible to them, but it did not cause their ungodliness. In other words, grace, having a lot of money isn't inherently sinful, but it's dangerous. In broadest terms, the dangers tied to being rich are probably best summed up in the story of the rich man in Matthew 19. Here's an abbreviated version of that. And behold, a man came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Fast forward a little bit. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. As you know, there were many things he did do and had done to obey God. But this thing, this was different. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In short, in short, Being rich is dangerous, not inherently sinful, but inherently dangerous because it makes it harder to get into the kingdom of God. How is that? Why is that? Here it is. This is the the key that unlocks this whole sermon and what makes all the things they did do sinful. and, And it's also the key to how, which we'll come to later, how we avoid it. Simply, it is because the very heart of the Christian faith, what's at the heart of following Jesus? What's at the heart of what it means to live a life that's pleasing to God? At the very heart of the Christian faith is trusting in and treasuring Jesus above all else. But being wealthy provides a constant temptation to trust in and treasure your money or the things it gives you access to instead. Wealth often offers, wealth often appears to be a legitimate substitute for Jesus. That's the key. The reason wealth is so dangerous is because it appears to be a legitimate substitute for Jesus. It's a lie. It's fake, but it's a good lie. It's a clever lie. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a well done fake. With wealth, we can purchase forms of protection and security in the way of safe neighborhoods or alarm systems or even personal bodyguards. With it, we can purchase insurance as a safety net for just about anything. With it, we can purchase the best health care the world has ever known to protect our bodies. It seems to be a legitimate substitute for Jesus in the way of protection. And it, does, it also can provide for us or purchase for us forms of pleasure. All of us are able to buy things that can give us joy. That's often why we buy things, is because they give us a type of Short-term pleasure, a temporary joy. Now imagine having enough 
money to be able to purchase a never-ending stream of temporary joys. For a time at least, that would seem to offer unending pleasure. Similarly, we can purchase pleasure if we have enough money in the form of admiration and adulation. Most people are impressed with success in the form of wealth. The wealthy never have to seek out people to praise them, again, providing what seems to be a substitute for Jesus. So so our wealth always, always puts before us a a contest between it and Jesus as worthy of our trust and worthy of our treasure. They constantly entice us to trust and treasure the money that makes these things available rather than Jesus who made them and rules them. Again, the danger isn't the wealth itself, but that which it continues to offer, a a seemingly genuine alternative to Jesus. All right, let me, let me, one one more thing here to make it worse. Uh, Although this passage speaks directly and exclusively about the financially rich, it also applies to all who are rich in skill or beauty or intelligence or anything else that might deceptively overshadow Jesus in our affections. None of those things are bad in themselves. In fact, they're gifts from God, but they are also dangerous to those who possess them if they forget that it is God that gave them and for the purposes of God, and that's easy to do. So here we go. The rich among James's readers were in an exceedingly dangerous position. So much so that James said they ought to begin weeping and howling right now in light of the, minis- the miseries that were coming fast upon them. Importantly, however, it was not their wealth itself that was the problem, but three things, how they viewed it, how they'd gotten it, and what they were doing with it. In the way of a warning for us, we'll consider each of those now. Let's turn our attention, therefore, to the specific forms of ungodliness that flowed from the enticement provided by their wealth. So that was the the first section, being rich is dangerous. The second section is James's readers gave in to the ungodliness that their wealth made possible. If the rich among James's readers were in dire straits, but it was not the actual possession of the wealth that put them there, what was it? What, what was it? What exactly put them in this bad place? My favorite commentator, we're almost through James, and the one that I've enjoyed the most, he said this. He has a way of saying this. He noted that every woe must have a four. It's such a, I don't know, that's neat. Every woe must have a four. That is, this is the Dave translation of Manton. Where God commands his people to weep and mourn, he always also tells us Why? in order that we might repent. Wherever there's a woe, a call a call to woe, there's also a reason for it, in order that we might do something about it in the strength of God. So we can see four, four fours, four fours in this text that are the cause of the call to woe. Here they are, here are the four. They hoarded their money. They became rich through sinful means. They gained their money through sinful means. They used their money for luxury and self-indulgence. And they used their money to pervert justice. For those four reasons, they were called to weep and howl over the destruction coming upon them. Let's, let's consider each of those. They hoarded their money. 
See that in verses 2 or 3. In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commanded his hearers, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Paul says almost the exact same thing in 1 Timothy 6. And so in direct contradiction to both Jesus and Paul, James rebuked his readers. Look at verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. He's clearly, the, the words of his brother are echoing in his ears as he wrote this. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The only way, Grace, that goods can rot, how do your, how do your goods rot? The only way your clothes can be moth-eaten, how does that happen? The only way your money can corrode, what makes that possible? The only way those things can happen is if they're gathered in excess and not used. If they're just sitting somewhere, piled up. That is, if they are hoarded, not shared with those in need, and not even used by yourself. Jesus promised that every earthly possession would be eventually lost, stolen, or destroyed. Jesus promised to provide now and forever for all who would trust in him rather than the things of earth. And Jesus also promised heavenly treasures that would far outlast and outshine anything we find on earth. Rather than trust in Jesus and store up treasures in heaven, however, James's readers chose instead to gather and hoard wealth on earth. That's the essence of what it means to lay up treasures in the last days. They hoarded it. They, they gathered money and gathered money and used it to get things that they just let sit and rot. That was the first problem. Here's the second. Their wealth, verse 4, was gained through theft. The second reason James commanded his readers, his rich readers, to weep and howl in anticipation of the onslaught of unending miseries was because their wealth was gained through theft and theft of the most vile kind, the kind that God most explicitly prohibited and told his people that he would not tolerate. Look at again verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James's readers had gotten rich, at least in part, by hiring temporary workers, the more vulnerable among the people, to work their fields. They got the work out of them, but then in the end they refused to pay them. Most simply, this was a violation of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. More seriously still, it was a Violation of a series of commandments that you shall not steal, especially from the poor and the vulnerable. Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant, this is what James's readers were doing was directly against this. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you even through the night until morning. Pay them now. They need it. Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners, a Jew or a Gentile, a sojourner who is in your land or within your town. 
You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Malachi 3.5 Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Again, the hired servants of verse 4 were poor and vulnerable. The words of the prophet condemned James's readers even before James did. Getting rich through honest means is dangerous, even if it's a blessing. Getting rich through theft, and especially theft of the vulnerable, is deadly. James's rich readers were doing this. Number three, the third way in which they sinned with their wealth was in the fact that rather than using it to serve the poor, like God commands, bless the saints as God commands, reach the nations with the gospel as God commands, and ultimately to glorify God, they used it to live in ever-increasing luxury and self-indulgence. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have, in so doing, fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Get this. This is important, too. The problem is not that some of James's readers had opportunity to celebrate or feast or experience blessing and pleasure. Those are good in some ways and even commanded by God. But here's the thing. They are meant to be occasionally ours, Grace. They're meant to be occasionally ours, but we are never meant to be theirs. That's a good line. <laughs> Let me say that again. They are meant to be occasionally ours, but we are never meant to be theirs. Let me say that again in a couple of different ways. By God's grace, all of us will and should experience such things on earth, celebrations and feasts and blessings and pleasure. But while we are meant to have them, we are not meant in this life to live in them. Excess is meant to be an event in this life, not a lifestyle. That was the problem. This is the heart of Jesus' words in Luke twenty or in Luke six twenty four. But woe to you who are rich in living constantly out of your riches, for you have received your consolation. Whatever pleasure you have, soak it up, because this is all you're going to get when the next life comes. You're in trouble. Woe to you who are now full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. See the same thing in the story of Lazarus a little later in Luke. Remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But he now is comforted here, and you are in anguish. That's what James is getting at. When God gives financial blessing to us, and we in some ways pray that he would, it is to accomplish his purposes and demonstrate the uniqueness of his glory. It is not to enable us to continually fulfill the desires of our flesh. For if we do, that will be the fullness of our reward. James's readers had missed all this entirely. They gained their wealth through sinful, exploitive means. They hoarded it, and then they spent it on worldly pleasures rather than use it according to God's word, according to God's will. And as such, they were preparing themselves, James says, for the day of eternal slaughter. All right, one more. They used their money to pervert justice, verse 6. Why is it that they were meant to weep and hollow and commanded to weep and howl? Why is it that miseries were beginning to be upon them and were fast approaching eternally? Number six, they used their money 
to pervert justice. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The language implies some sort of courtroom setting, some type of formal legal charge. That is, the rich were using their wealth to pervert justice for the poor and effectively leaving them in a position in which they were unable to survive. The rich loved the riches so much that they were willing to fight with murderous intent to get it and keep it. They loved the riches so much that they were willing to falsely accuse and condemn the innocent to get it and keep it. They loved the riches so much that they were willing to worship it rather than God. And for all of these reasons, they stood condemned before God. Thus James told them that if they really understood the peril they were in, which they clearly didn't yet, they ought to have been weeping and howling continually. All right. (laughs) That's a lot. That's heavy. So if we hear it rightly, we ought to be asking ourselves, how do we, how do we avoid that? How do we not fall into that ourselves as some of James's readers had? We've seen how deadly riches can be when God's people give themselves to trusting and treasuring in them in place of Jesus. How then might we avoid the danger and certain death that wealth can lead to? The first thing to settle on is the fact that all of us, every single person in this room, is in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the history of the world. We take that for granted. And what seems modest to us is miles and miles and miles and miles beyond what 99% of all people ever have known. The reality that hunger, nakedness, homelessness are not dangers for us or maybe anyone we know puts us in a truly unique place in the days of men. The point I'm trying to make here is that, in a way, there's a way in which all of us are rich. And therefore, the danger described by James to a particular group of people in this passage applies to all of us. So again, how do we avoid this? How do we avoid their fate? How do we avoid giving in to the temptation, which they did? Four things. Number one, don't be rich. (laughs) Don't be rich. If you have money, if you have more money than you need to provide for your family and be responsible for the future, don't use it. Don't use the excess to increase your luxury and self-indulgence. Instead, give it away. Give it away with exceeding generosity to gospel causes. It sounds a little self-serving for me who am employed by you to say this, but first, give it, give it to your church. I think that's what God's word says where your church's needs are well supplied for and the vision that the elders and deacons and even the whole of the congregation is laid out, give beyond that to good and gospel causes. One of our missionaries who's consistently and sacrificially sharing the gospel in hard places or a gospel-centered pregnancy resource center or a ministry that cares for vulnerable moms and kids. Use your excess to provide for their needs and encourage their faith. I know, I know that it would be fairly easy. It wouldn't cost some of us much to give $1,000 or more a month to help Dustin and Kelly focus on reaching the nations rather than raising support or together for good to serve the ever-increasing number of moms and kids reaching out to them rather than hassle with the cost tied to building their new resource center in Minneapolis. 
The best way I've ever heard to put this into practice to avoid being rich in this way is to commit to a lifestyle. Not a percentage of what you give away, but a lifestyle. Commit to living frugally. Decide how much money that will take and give the rest away to gospel-centered discipleship ministries. Second, spend time with people who aren't rich. The rich tend to associate with the rich. Surround yourself with those who do not have a lot of money. When your friends are all able to eat out or vacation or purchase whatever they want whenever, it's difficult to maintain perspective, the kind that James is giving us. On the other hand, if you're regularly spending time with the kinds of people Jesus spent time with, people without a lot of earthly resources, you'll feel less pull to spend money on worldly, excessive, self-indulgent things. And even more than that, you'll discover lots and lots more ways to give your money to meet real needs in the name of Christ. Third, have good and godly friends. Having godly friends means having friends who are more impressed with God than money. Your money, their money. It means having friends who are continually pressing in on obedience to God with what they have. And you can look to them to see that. It means having friends who will tempt you to join them in sacrificial Christ following rather than worldliness. It means having friends who will pray for you and challenge you if it looks like you're living like those that James was addressing. It means having friends with real stories and real examples of how they've given generously and sacrificially and how God has been faithful to them the entire time. Lastly and finally, remember what's true. Remember the commands of God and use your money to obey them. Remember the promises of God for your money and believe them. Remember that money in itself is inherently valueless. It is God and God alone who gives value to things. Remember the truth that on its own all wealth can offer is a fake, temporary version of what Christ offers for real and forever. Remember that Christ is supreme. Remember the gospel, and you won't be able to fall into the trap that James's readers did. One way or another, in this life or the next, James's rich readers would realize that they were, in fact, naked. While, they, while their wealth had given them the illusion of being clothed with power and safety, protection and significance, the illusion would not last. They would eventually be stripped bare, naked of everything they trusted in. As bad as things had gotten, however, all was not lost. Hear this in conclusion, Grace. James's readers had given in to some truly evil things, but those things had not placed them beyond redemption. Even as no sin can ever place any of us beyond saving while we have breath. James wrote our passage not to eternally condemn them, but to explain their dire situation in order that they might repent and avoid eternal condemnation. Grace, Jesus will always receive you when you come to him. Always. Jesus will always receive you if you come to him in humble faith. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, the grace of God is always bigger than all your sin. Whether your sin relates to money or sex or anger or violence or selfishness, Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior for all who turn to him. He alone is worthy of our trust, and he is the supreme treasure. Look to him today, and he will receive you. 
He will forgive you. He will heal you. And he will bring you into everlasting fellowship with God.